shall meet on that beautiful shore in the sweet by and by we shall meet on that beautiful shore bible we are in judges chapter 2 this evening judges chapter 2 we are singing is there's a new name written down in glory is it yours is it mine uh, I have a friend who years ago when he first started going to church, he didn't know, he was an adult and he just didn't know some of the phrases that are used in church, many of which come straight from scripture. And so the pastor got up and he was preaching. He says, is your name in the book? And over the course of several weeks, the pastor had used that phrase about heaven. Are you going to heaven? Is your name in the book? And that guy looked at his wife. He said, we got to find this book. I got to find out if my name is in this book. And, and he just didn't understand. But man, he'd go through the lobby and he, he kept looking in the lobby and looking behind stuff. He wanted to know where that book was and whether his name was in it. And finally, he began to understand what that means, and he is on his way to heaven tonight. So praise the Lord for that great truth. In Judges chapter 2, we will be looking at a passage here in just a moment. Before we do, I want to give you a verse that many would know well. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 15. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. And will forgive their sin and will heal their land. You have in scripture specific promises to the nation of Israel. These are promises that God made to a group of people that were clearly defined for that group of people. And there would be those who would say today that the church is modern day Israel. Well, that's not the case. The church is the church and Israel is Israel and these are not the same. However, having said that, oftentimes in the promises that God makes to the nation of Israel, we see the character of God revealed. And so when you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, you see a specific promise that reveals a bit of God's character. And in the character, what you are seeing is that there is a time and a place when God will take a group of people, and he will pull his hand of blessing off of that group of people because of the sinfulness of that group of people. And specifically, in this case, it is Israel. But he also makes another point. If my people, which are called by my name... Well, now we know, again, that the church today is not Israel, but it is a group of people that is called by his name. If my people were called by my name, will turn... ...from their wicked way. So there is a process of when a group of people... ...who believe in God... ...who have gotten away from God... ...who have lost the hand of blessing of God... ...turn from their wicked way and turn back to God. Well, what word in a biblical theological context from Scripture... ...what word means to be going one direction... ...and to turn the other direction? Help me out this evening. What's the word? Repent. To repent. So if my people will repent of their wicked ways and then will come and call on me, then they will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins. Now, is there a promise in scripture for those who are going the wrong way, who repent, who call on God for forgiveness, that forgiveness for sin will be granted? Is that true for just Israel or is that true for the church as well? Well, 
First John helps us understand that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there is a principle here for those who are called by his name, who will repent, who will turn to God, ask for forgiveness of sin, that God then in turn says that I will heal their land. Tonight, we want to take time as a church, and we're going to spend time here in just a little bit, praying for two things specifically. We're going to be praying for our revival services that are scheduled for next week. That time in which we are coming together, as we looked at this morning, to see the Lord do a work in our church. And we're going to look a little bit more at that here in just a minute, even in Scripture. And then we're also going to be taking time to pause and to pray for our country. As a country, we are faced with an election coming up this week. And there is much going on in our country. And probably the points of view for the two parties that are before us for election to a federal level, and in many ways on a local level, those two parties have a vast directional, philosophical, theological difference, more so than probably any other time in American history. And so there are some real questions and concerns. So specifically tonight, as we take the principles of Second Chronicles I am not just referring to America as this land that God has chosen. Because I don't believe that's what that verse is referring to. That's referring specifically to Israel. But at the founding of our country, there were a group of people who sat down and said, because of the providence of Almighty God, we are here. And because of God, we want to establish a nation that is ready and available for the service of God. And so it's undeniable, and it doesn't matter how we try to revisionist history, that there is a Christian ethic at the base of the founding of our country. Okay, so so that is true. Then for the church, there should never be a question as to the fact that we are a group of people that are called by his name. So though we are not Israel, both nationally and as a church, ecclesiastically, we fall into a mold here. Looking at then the principle of God, here are people who some have turned away from God. Now, could you argue that we as a church have turned our back on God? Well, no, I I wouldn't say that at all. I I would think directionally, theologically, doctrinally as a church, we still hold to the principles of Scripture to the very best that we know them. And as a group of believers here tonight and at Harvest Baptist Church, we don't come to God's word and reject God's word as not being true. Could there be things that we do that are not the way that scripture teaches us to do them? Yes, but it's not something we do intentionally as a church, though sometimes individually we do things intentionally just by our own free will choice when we know that that's not what scripture would have us to do. But as a whole, our heart's desire as a church is still very much that we would lift up and make the name of the Lord great. And we will come back and even see a passage referring to Israel that I think we would say we fall into. Nationally, would it be fair to say that America as a nation has turned her back on God? It's an argument of great debate. If you ask the world as a whole and the country as a whole, even those that are religious scholars in our country, 
we are no longer a Christian nation. We are a post-Christian nation. So by that very definition, then you would say, as a whole, our country has turned its back on God. Now, if you look at our country compared to Israel and Judges, where we're going to look, would we have turned our back as greatly on God as Israel did at that point? I would argue probably not. The defining characteristic there in the book of Judges is every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And so I don't feel like as a whole our nation has rejected God the way that the nation of Israel had at this point in Scripture. However, having said that, some of the decisions that are on the ballot box this year, if you will, and I know we're not voting for the decisions, but we're voting for individuals who stand in positions on those decisions. Some of those decisions are either for or greatly against biblical principles. Some of which, if you just follow the natural progression of the decision... And the individual who's stating this is the way they're going, you can't argue that whether it happens in the next year or the next 10 years, that the direction, if it continues to go their way, would lead the country dramatically away from God. So that's the reality of where we are at tonight. Let's look specifically at Israel, then we'll come back and look at us ecclesiastically and nationally. Judges chapter 2, verse 13. And they forsook the Lord. Well, that right there becomes one of the defining statements in this whole area of revival. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. They put other gods before them. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he delivered them into the hands of the spoilers that spoiled them. For just a moment, think back to when you were a small child. And when the anger... Of mama was hot. Yeah, okay. So just just have that picture in your mind for a second. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he delivered them into the hands of the spoilers that spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about. So that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. The enemies of Israel in the book of Judges. Are these godly people that are their enemies? No, they're not. These are pagan people that are their enemies. So make no mistake, God used pagans to judge his people because they had forsaken God. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet, they would not hearken unto their judges. But they went a-whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord. But they did not so. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of that judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. And they ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. The nation of Israel would get 
into oppression. God would send the judgment. It was completely from God to get their attention. They would become so broken, they would become so oppressed, so vexed, that they would finally come to a place of repentance. Where they would recognize that the path they were leading to, bowing down to Baal, to Ashtaroth, worshiping other gods, was causing them to lose the hand of God's blessing and to bring about the wrath of God that was hot after them. And they would finally repent when things got bad enough. We use a phrase in our day called, they hit bottom. When they would hit rock bottom, then they would come back to God. And when they would turn, God would send a judge. And that judge would come along and that judge would help deliver them from the other nations. He would help them get their freedom back. They would then, after they had their freedom back and the oppression was gone and the weight was gone, after a short amount of time, they would begin to fall back into their old ways. And when that judge would die and pass off the scene, then the children of those people who had been rescued by that judge would be more wicked than their parents had been. And they would return to, and isn't it great, they would return to their stubborn way. We have natural proclivities. We have natural stubborn ways that we fall into. And when we fall back into our old fleshly ways, then we tend to be moving away from God and we need help to turn back. The judge was, if you will, the revival preacher that God would use to help get them turned back around. But the judge, in helping get them turned back around, really didn't come on the scene until they were already, as we looked at this morning, humble and contrite. Until they were broken, the help didn't come. When the help came, they would turn back around. The revival would come to the land. And then at that moment when the revival came to the land, they would begin to move forward. You see, the condition of their hearts matches in so many ways the conditions of our hearts as a country collectively and many times of churches. We would love to say that we don't have an idolatrous heart. That we don't have a heart that goes seeking other gods. But the truth is, we are as guilty as Israel is at seeking other gods. One of the great gods of our day and age is entertainment. And oh, how we pour our lives into entertainment. One of the great gods of our days is money. And we pour our life into it. And when my goals and my desires for life match the world's desires, I now have a conflict of interest in which there is a different God in my heart than the God of Scripture. <clears throat> if, and I know these don't really exist much anymore, but if you walk into a bookstore and you can find a book that easily helps define the direction of your life in the average bookstore, you got the wrong direction. It should be that our way of life as Christians and with God leading us, our hearts are so different that it is hard to find something in the world today that explains to us how our life should be lived. Now, fortunately, there are some great Christian materials out there, but you can even see in Christian materials how idolatry is creeping into them. But our heart's condition is much like Israel's. As church people and as a country as a whole, 
is it any wonder that the next generation of Christians, the next one that's coming up after the judge has died, that next generation doesn't see the importance of fighting for Christian values the way that the previous generation did? But it's because the previous generation understood those values, but yet their heart's desire, their God, was not God. It was less than God. And and though they believed in God and they made God important, they still lowered him and made other idols in their life. And if we're not careful, what we do is we take other things of this life and we prop them up. And make no mistake... In putting these two thoughts together tonight, our political party can become a god to us. Can't make that mistake. Look, I believe in the Second Amendment. Okay, I I have firearms. I like my firearms. I want to keep my firearms. I do not believe in the millennial kingdom that I'm going to have guns. Okay, I, I don't see anywhere in Scripture... That my firearms are my right before God. Though as long as I have any say in any vote, I want to protect that right as an American. It's not going to become my God. But it can be. And we have to be so careful that we don't teach the next generation that the wrong things. That aren't necessarily wrong, that are good and are great freedoms and rights that we have as citizens are not fundamental to my Christian belief. My Christianity is not defined by any constitution or constitutional amendment. And I have to recognize that. So don't allow other gods in. Baal, Ashtaroth became their gods. Money, freedom, certain other things, and you know what they are in your life, become your god. And as a nation, without a doubt, the whole of our nation has many gods in front of Jehovah God. When the condition of our hearts becomes like Judges chapter 2, then God takes his hand of blessing away. Take your Bible, turn over to Judges chapter 10. In Judges chapter 10, we see one example of this unfold. There was a cycle of sin that took place in Israel. They would get away from God. God would bring judgment on them. He would then send a judge to deliver them. They would be set free from their sin. And then they would fall back into sin. Then they would go back into judgment. Another deliverer would come. They would get right with God and repent and so on and so on in this cycle. Judges chapter 10 beginning in verse 7 gives us one of these examples of what's taking place. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the children of Ammon. And that year they vexed and oppressed the children of Israel. Eighteen years all the children of Israel that were on the other side Jordan in the land of the Amorites which is in Gilead. Moreover the children of Ammon passed over Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. So that Israel was sore distressed. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord saying... We have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. So they recognize there were two things here. And the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the children of Ammon and from the Philistines? 
the Zidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Moanites, did oppress you, and ye cried to me, and I delivered you out of their hand. Yet ye have forsaken me, and I and served other gods. Wherefore, I will deliver you no more. That has to be one of the most disheartening phrases ever for anyone. When the Lord looks and says, I have done it, I have done it so many times, I'm done. I'm not helping you any more. Over. Verse 14. Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. And the children of Israel said unto the Lord, We have sinned. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee, this day. And they put away the strange gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. Then the children of Ammon were gathered together and encamped in Gilead. And the children of Israel assembled themselves together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people and princes of Gilead said one to another, What man is he that will begin to fight against the children of Ammon? And he shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And then you go on and you see how this battle unfolds and how God brings victory to the nation of Israel. But what's key here is they recognize God calls them out. I have delivered you and you've still forsaken me. If you think these gods are great, go to them for help. They realize the futility of these other gods. They then come before God and they say, deliver us, please. We beg you. But if not, we're going to turn from our wicked way anyways. And when they do... The promise of 2 Corinthians comes so real and true in their life because the natural outpouring of the grace of God for people who are doing right and his hand of blessing on those who are walking in his way is unavoidable. So though God said, look, you go to your other gods for delivering, they said, no, we want you. And when they turned back to him, God then delivers them. You see, the response to the condition of our hearts for revival is to then say, Lord, whatever I have that I have made more important than you does not matter. Even to the point to where, Lord, we want you to deliver us, but if not, we're going to turn to you anyway. As Christians, we can get this attitude of, well, God... If you will let this person get elected, then I'll follow you. God, if you'll give me this job, then I'll follow you. God, if you'll bring this into my life, then. No. We, if we want to see revival, we have to make this decision. I'm going to follow you. It doesn't matter to me what happens after that. You're more important. There's some folks that we know. It's just a a sad, heartbreaking situation. He'd gotten married to her, and the two of them, as they went through life together, had a rough start, but she got saved. He lived wickedly. And as bad as it can be in a couple not get divorced, it was that bad and worse than what you're thinking. But he moved out, kept his house, kept a house for her and the kids, but just didn't want anything to do with her. She wanted to see God save her husband. For years, 
She prayed and prayed and prayed and people prayed and people prayed and people prayed. Finally, her husband got saved. Her husband gets saved and he, he begins to try and figure out what Christianity is all about. His job was such that it was not a Christian environment by any stretch. But yet it was a good paying job. And that job could provide the needs that they had. Over time he struggled, he struggled, he struggled. Finally he came to the place to where he said, you know what? I've got to choose God over the lifestyle that I'm accustomed to. And he gave up a good paying job that was wicked in its environment for a job that made not nearly the money. And he said, it's okay because I want God instead. That decision actually cost him greatly. But he said, I want God more. And in the end, when you look at it now, for his sake, that was the best decision he could have ever made. But it was a very difficult process and a willingness to suffer because he made a decision that I want God more. Israel needed to make that decision. And you and I have to be willing to make that decision. The decision to say, I want God more, is not a decision that, okay, yeah, I'm going to go through a rough time for a few days, but I know that in the end, I'm going to get everything I ever wanted. No, the decision is to say, I don't care about anything else that this life ever has to offer. I want God more. That's the heart of repentance that changes and allows for healing in our lives spiritually. That's the decision that can bring revival to my heart. That's the decision that can bring revival to a land. We live, as much as we try to push back on it, we still live with this idea that if we can get the right person in office, if we can have this, this Christianity aspect to our country, then the economy's going to boom and everybody will be greatly successful financially and it'll all be worth it. Just trust us and watch. If that never happens, it doesn't matter. What matters is that we turn to God and we want God more. Faith is doing what's right and trusting God with the outcome. God, if that's the outcome you want, great. Who wouldn't want that? If it's not the outcome you want, God, then great. It doesn't matter because the wealth is not what I need. You are. Revival is making that decision. So what is the way to get that revival? We turn, we give our hearts. Joshua chapter 3, Joshua helped with this. He said unto the people, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do wonders among you. Get yourself clean. But the way to get others revived and the way to see revival in our land. Daniel does the best job of this and specifically with regard to the nation of Israel. Israel goes into captivity because of their sinfulness. There after years and years of captivity in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel begins to pray. And he says, I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O oh Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy of them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity and have done wickedly, and have rebelled even by departing from the precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. He said, what I want, Lord, is I come to you, and I recognize that the sinfulness of our country and our disregard of you has put us here. God, bring us back 
for your glory. And Daniel begins to pray. He prays that God will change the way that the judgment has taken place, knowing that that was even prophesied, but prays that God will lift that nation back up. And God does. But prayer... ...versus the hot wrath of God on their life. A changed life will occur when we as individuals begin to pray and to beg and to seek God. So if we want to see a heart turn from idolatry to what I want is only God, then the key to that is going to be prayer. If we want to see a church changed, it will happen through prayer. If we want to see a nation changed, it's going to happen through prayer. It will not happen through an election. So tonight, we are going to take time and we are going to pray specifically in these areas. Um, I, I want to pray about a couple of things, and I want to give you some direction, and then we're going to break up and we're going to take time to pray together. Nationally, for just a second. Now, give me a break on this, and we'll come right back. This is specifically for our church. Um, nationally, there are some real issues that this election will define. I can imagine, without saying any names, who most in this room will be voting for, if you haven't already. Um, and, and by the way, we were joking about this. If you haven't decided who you're voting for, really, is one more ad going to help you at this point? I mean, come on. But there are some very serious matters that are being defined by two candidates. Uh, there was a well-known, biblically sound pastor in America who came out a week, week and a half ago and said, I'm not voting in this election. And here's the reason why. And he gave reasons as to why he didn't believe either of the two candidates were worth voting for. I disagree with him. Okay. Now, his reasons for both candidates was absolutely true. There are reasons why both of these individuals that are running for president are not worthy of being our president. There are reasons every single one of us are not worthy of being president. Okay. So let's start there and understand that. Are there legitimate good reasons why the two candidates before us, neither of which are the best possible choice in our land. Yes, there are reasons. Okay, sure. But does that mean that I, as an American, shirk my civic responsibility and just say, because I don't like these two, I'm not going to have anything to do with this? Well, no, that's unwise, I believe. On one side, you have an individual who has come out in between he and his running mate, have stated clearly their opposition to the rights of God's people, churches, taking biblical principles that they believe and see in Scripture and trying to live by those principles. They have clearly come out and said, no, that's wrong, and we're not going to protect the church to believe what they say they believe. And what they say they believe isn't true, so because we disagree with them, we're not going to protect that right. Uh, one group has come out, this same group has said, we don't believe that a life inside the womb has value. And so that up until the time that that child is out of the womb, that child can be put to death, regardless of when. Tonight on the way here, my children asked if they had ever been out of the country. I said, yes, Mariah has been to Mexico, Justice has been to Mexico and to Belize. Now they were carry-ons at the time, but, the, but both of them have been to those countries. Life 
should be protected. And make no mistake, this is not as big of an issue, but it absolutely will be from the same side that says life in the womb doesn't matter and can be terminated anytime you want. We'll also define that life can be terminated at the end of life for whatever reason that you want to define at the end of life. And that is clearly taught there. Uh, there is another side on this that says your identity has absolutely nothing to do with God. So you say, well, they don't say that. You're right, they don't. What they do is they say the Bible doesn't, we don't care what the Bible says. You can define who you are, whether you are a boy or whether you are a girl, regardless of your age. You can, in turn, regardless of your age, make a choice about who you are. And the government should have to pay for you to have surgery to take care of any physical changes that you want to change you into who you are. So, I just want to know what's going to happen when somebody says, I want to be a werewolf, and we have to do a surgery to make them into a werewolf. Because you say, well, that's ludicrous. Yes, it's not any more ludicrous than saying an eight-year-old who can't decide whether they get mac or cheese or chicken nuggets for dinner, in my opinion, can decide what gender they're going to be. You can decide what prison you want to go to based on your own identity. You're a criminal. You don't get a lot of choices anymore, okay? But there is a party that is now saying these are rights that are fundamental to people. And I look at that and I go, how can anyone think that way? But that's on one side. Now, on the other side, there is some ego that could not possibly fit in this auditorium. I understand that. There is some attitude that is divisive and abrasive. Again, understand that. There are even some positions that are being taken that are the same as they're taking on that side in regard to defining marriage. And they're equally wicked. But there is a willingness on this side to say that churches have a right to believe what they say they believe. That a child in the womb has a right to life. And that dependency is not a capital crime. And there is a side that says now that in that we need to protect what our country was founded on and allow those liberties for individuals to make decisions based on what scripture teaches. And even at a deeper level there is a line there that says parents have a right to have some say in raising their children. Which you make no mistake. There is another side that is saying parents have no right to make a decision about raising their children. The biggest national complaint about COVID closing schools is that the children can no longer be brainwashed in their schools. To the level that there are a group of people saying that if your kid's going to watch our instructor on TV as a parent, you're not allowed to watch. Whatever, I'm not. <laughs> it's not happening, man. It's ludicrous. And so you say, which of these two is right? Well, it's obvious to me. But having said that, as I pray for our nation, I recognize that neither side will save our land. I completely understand that. I want to see someone who will protect my religious freedom in office. Regardless of anything else, that is a major difference. I want to see someone who will protect life in office. And again, like or don't like, you have to admit that one of these two candidates 
has done what he said he would do, even if four years ago you didn't think he would do what he said he would do. And there is another candidate who for 47 years has said he would do whatever would get him in office. And he changes all the time. And all you have to do is look at his record. He will do whatever is politically beneficial to him at any given moment. Now, again, this isn't what's going to save our land. I do pray, and I think we ought to pray, that the Lord would allow those in federal, but even more so in state, in Senate, in Congress, in local areas, to be elected who will protect the freedoms of religion that we enjoy and who will protect the sanctity of human life. And I believe that that's something that we ought to... And going even a step further, that there would be those who would be brought into places who would protect the biblical definition of our identity and humanity. That God made them, male and female, created he, him, them. So I think that's vital to our national, and I think we ought to pray about that. Now, let's look specifically at our church when it comes to revival. I put a list up, and we'll leave this up as we pray so you can kind of peek at it. There are multiple things here. Uh, War Games is on Friday night. Now, that is the Friday night before, so that's this coming Friday. This is a particular time in which we are trying to do an outreach to young people, to teenagers. And our evangelist, Brother Adrian Byrne, is going to be preaching at that. Teens, there are certain things you see in churches, and though I don't believe it to be right, I believe it is a common thing that you see. When churches begin to get on fire for God, oftentimes it starts in teenagers. Now, I don't believe that's the way it should be. It ought to start in men. It ought to start in the fathers and the dads, and they should be the ones who start the process. But often you see an energy come into a church when teenagers get on fire for the Lord. And so we're having specifically our war games to help our teenagers. In that, we are praying that teens would be saved. Now, our teens are inviting people. We've invited other churches. This is not an entertainment event. There will be a lot of fun. There will be a lot of games. We want to see teens saved. That is a goal of our life. We want to see teens doing right. We want to see them have a desire to walk with the Lord. And I want that for our teenagers. There is constant pressure in the lives of young people in ways that you and I never knew growing up that is real, it is tangible, it is effective, and unless our young people are walking with the Lord, we will lose the next generation. It is what happened in Judges. We don't want to see it happen here. And we want to see young people surrender to God's service. It has been said it takes the average church 40 years and five other churches around them to see one person surrender to go into ministry for the Lord. At that rate, Christianity can't help but die. It just can't help but die. We need to see young people who will make a conscious decision to give their life to serving the Lord. So we want to pray specifically when it comes to our teens and for the war games in that area. Then, for the revival services, we want to pray for visitors that people will come. Why is that? Well, Multiple reasons, but one of the reasons I believe this to be greatest is John R. Rice made a statement, and I appreciate so much of what John R. Rice believed and said and taught and who he was as a person, and though he was certainly fallible, there, there are things that were great about him. 
John Rice, you see, you cannot have revival without souls saved. And modern churches and even modern evangelists, of which I don't think Brother Adrian would fit this mold, have come to a place to where they try to convince people who are in the church that they're not saved so that they will get saved again, quote unquote. That's so detrimental to the greater theology of the church and to the greater good of the church. But I'm telling you, it's as common as having someone stand in a pulpit on a Sunday night. I mean, it's, it's very common. I want to see people come who have not trusted in Christ as Savior so that they can hear the gospel. And it's encouraging to a group of believers to see people saved. And we want to see visitors and even down a little further on the list, salvation. Uh, I want to see neighbors. And the reason I say that is because those are the people that we know that we know well, that are not directly connected to our church. So I want to see us be able to talk to people that we know around us and that we have daily life with, that they will come and recognize the power of God and that they would begin to see that. And so that they see us not just as the person who's next door, but also as someone who holds the Bible truth and who believes it and lives it out in front of them. I want to see marriages healed. The foundation of any country is the home. The foundation of churches is the home. When you, and I can't imagine there's anybody in here who doesn't have someone close to them, probably in your family, who has not gone through a marriage tearing apart. Man, it's devastating. And, and when you watch the effect of it in that home and on those children and in the next generation, man, it just cascades. I want to see healthy marriages. And unfortunately, what happens is in, in churches, most of the time, if you're in a church like ours, the marriage doesn't tend to disintegrate. It just devolves. So that the couple stays together because they know they're supposed to. But they set such a bad example of marriage for their kids that it changes the way their kids see marriage. I want to see vibrant, loving marriages. I want to see families that work. I want to see families... Where years later, a mom and dad can look at a grandchild and say to a grandchild, here's a spiritual need that I have a concern about in you. And that the kids in between don't get offended, but they see the same spiritual need and they're grateful for parents who see that need and who are praying for that grandchild. I, I love to go and visit Kara's grandparents. Because I now have their great-grandchildren. And in their 90s, to be able to see our kids stand in front of them and say Bible verses means the world to them. I mean, there is no gift I could ever give Grandma and Grandpa that would be the value of what they see when my kids sing a song that they know or say Bible verses that they know. It means everything to them. It's because they're going, man... We taught it to our kids, who taught it to their kids, who are teaching it to their kids. Man, there's value in that. But let's pray that the Lord uses these services to help and that there would be victory over sin. I am so heartbroken with the aspect of Christianity in our culture today that says it's okay to live in sin. Now, we don't word it that way. Um, look, all of us have struggles and we need a greater openness to talk and to seek help with those struggles. I completely believe that. 
But there's this aspect of where it's, I live in defeat for sin, and I want you to come alongside me and be compassionate towards the defeated life that I'm living. And I don't want that. I want it to be that I can come along beside you and say, I struggled with that too. Here's where I got victory. You can have it too. And that in time, that victory comes over sin, and we don't go through our Christian life living in the bondage of sin. Yes, we'll always be sinners. But we've got to start seeing victory in our lives over sinfulness to have the power of God on our lives and to have a testimony for the world around us. Those are the areas specifically that I want to see. So with that on the screen, uh, I don't know if we're still live streaming or not, but you're welcome. Those of you who joined us, thank you. Uh, And we're going to go to a time of prayer, and I encourage you to do the same. But what I would like for you to do is to try and get with someone who is not in your family. So, So just try and divide up a little bit. Get someone that you can pray with. Now, I will also encourage you, don't get in a group of 20. Because if you get in a group of 20, what happens is you all end up kind of repeating what the first two people say. And you just end up kind of almost in this formality of prayer. And I know we don't do it intentionally, but it is kind of the nature of our hearts. If you'll get with one or two other people, and look, there's some young kids in here tonight. They need to hear us pray, okay? It's okay. Get a kid in your group. Make them sit there. They can be still long enough to hear you pray. Let's get together And let's pray and let's legitimately ask God to bring revival to our church, earning with us and to our land. And pray that God will give us great direction.